when will we see another Earth? That's the holy grail of exoplanet astronomy, right? A, an Earth-sized world orbiting around a sun-like star in the habitable zone. We really want to be able to see that. And it's not just a factor of the telescopes. A bigger telescope will just make the glare of the star brighter and you still can't see the planet beside it. It's a factor of 10 billion. And so to be able to actually resolve just the planet without the star, you need a technology called a coronagraph. And there are many coronagraphs installed on observatories, both on ground and in space today. But even those really can't take us beyond showing a very large planet orbiting around a dim star. And that's not that other Earth. So today I'm joined by Dr. Lucy Lebou. She is a astronomer with the University of Paris, and she specializes in developing coronagraphs. She's working on next generation coronagraphs that hopefully for the future telescopes like the extremely large telescope and maybe Louvoir be able to resolve and block that light. And the technologies that she's working on are quite exciting. I've never heard some of this stuff before, and yet people are dreaming this stuff up. Now, I want to warn you, she is French and has a French accent, and so you may have a difficult time being able to understand what she says, but I promise, tough it out. Uh, it will feel very natural after a while, and the things that she says, the technology that she's working on, I promise you have never heard this before. So it's a fairly advanced conversation. And yet, if you want to really stay abreast of the state of the art, I think you're going to take away a lot of information from this interview. All right, enjoy the interview. So where are you located right now? Right now, I'm at the Institute of Planetology and Astrophysics of Grenoble in France, uh, in the Alps. And before we started, you you know we were going to talk about coronagraphs today, and you went and and found a coronagraph, and and brought it yeah. as. Can you show this? Yeah. So this is actually two two chronographs. I don't know if you can see with a gray background here. Yeah. Yeah. And those absolutely. Are designed for the extremely large telescope, so the telescope that is being built currently in Chile, in the Atacama Desert, and it will be a 40-meter diameter telescope. Oh, that's, um, yeah. This the, will be it. <laughs> and and I, I, I can't believe it's so small. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, for people who are listening for the podcast, the, the actual coronagraph is like maybe the size of a silver dollar, like a, or in Canada, a, a toonie. Um, it's not a very big thing. And, and what, and what's going on inside that, that object. So inside that object, what is going on? So here you can up. I don't know if yeah. you can see. Yeah. Uh, this is there is a part of light that can go through and a part of the light that is stopped. And the idea is to modulate, to modify the wavefront. So it's uh, so the image of a, of a star doesn't look like a point or a classical area pattern uh, like we used to have uh, using telescopes. We have no uh, stellar residuals in a large region around the star. And if we have no stellar residuals, we can detect very faint objects. We can right, get photos right. from other objects in this area. So, so this is the challenge is that, is that like what we all want is to see a picture of a planet. Yeah. 
But the problem is that the planet is like an Earth-sized world around a sun-like star. It's something like a billion, billion times fainter than the star. Yeah. So another Earth around a star that looks looks like our sun would be like 10, uh, 10 billion billions times fainter than the right. star. Right. Or and a million. Yeah. Yeah. And and so and so if you just pointed any telescope, the star and the planet are going to be in the same field of view. And so you just can't resolve the planet apart from the star. Yeah, they are too short, too uh, too close to each other, and also the planet will be totally lost in the stellar residuals in all uh, the speckles, uh, all uh, all the photon lost from the star. So the planet is somewhere, but we cannot detect it. And and even if you had a telescope with infinite magnification, would you, is it still like there's just too much like dust around the star that there's too much glare coming? Like could you could you zoom in right on the planet, or are you always going to to have this problem? So except if we have an infinite diameter telescope, we have a problem. The perfect telescope will be infinite and totally flat. I mean, totally with no errors, no surface error. But our telescopes are not like that. They are eight meter diameter telescopes. They are like four meters diameter telescope, and that's a problem already. Right. So, so until we develop the infinite telescope, we need to come figure out some way to block the light from the star. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so this yeah. is the technology of coronagraphs. So where did this idea come from? What is the history of the coronagraph? So actually, coronagraphs were not designed originally to image Earth-like planets or exoplanets. Coronagraphs were designed to look at the corona, so the area around the sun, so all, all the wind and all, all the uh, gas and matter ejection, ejections around the sun. And the problem was that they were too faint compared to the sun itself. So we, uh, Bernard Leo, a French astronomer, decided to put a, um, a mask in front of the size of the of the sun and to block all the light, all the photons coming from the earth, the core of the sun, and we could look at what were, what is around it. And then later on, we decided to use that technology to look at exoplanets, so planets very faint, very close to their star, like what is happening around the sun. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. But, but with the sun, I mean, the sun is like the size of the moon in the sky. Yeah. They're exactly the same. That's how we get eclipses. And so it is a disc. And so it does make sense that you can put a disc in front of the of the sun and see those fainter objects around. Yeah. But but with a star that's really far away, they're all just a single point. So yeah. how do you how do you block a point? <laughs> so this is where it's uh, really interesting in my, in my opinion, <laughs> but I have a passion for that. So <laughs> so what is interesting is that the image of a point through a telescope is not a point. It's actually a, a pattern, an airy pattern or whatever pattern. Uh, we have diffraction effect. I um, yeah diffraction effect everywhere, and so the image of a point is a disk with other stuff around. We want to remove those other stuff around because they can 
hide a planet. And we want also to remove the core of the, of the star because uh, it's too much light. On so our what, is, what is causing that, that pattern? Is it aberrations on the telescope or is it something from the laws of physics of light? So correcting all of that, it's only physics of, uh, of light. It's uh, every time on your telescope, you have an edge. That's why I was talking about infinite telescope. There is no edge. Every time you have an edge on your telescope, you have photons, light that is being lost in all directions. So on your telescope, you have a finite size telescope. So you have light going all everywhere on the detector. And uh, also, it's not only the edge of the telescope, it's also when you have a secondary mirror and you have those uh, spiders, those uh, sticks that can hold the secondary uh, mirror, they also um, put light, uh, diffract light everywhere on the detector. And that's a problem. That's a, We have complex apertures, what we call complex apertures, and we have a lot of diffraction, and that's diffraction, we want to control it. Right, so, but, but this idea that that what would be just a point of light on an infinite telescope on a finite telescope that has secondary mirrors and various other other hardware that point turns into a shape a blob on yeah. the in your image no matter what there's no way to resolve it down to a point you're always, and i guess people are very familiar now with web where it has that six-point star coming off of it, and the Hubble one has four. That is that is the shape of the of the star, and so that whatever that shape is, that is what you're looking to cancel, not just a point. You need to get rid of that whole shape. Yeah, you want to control both. Actually, you want to control the core of the of the star because we don't have detectors that can get photo, uh, that much light from a, from a star and also that few photons coming from the planet. So we want to remove the core of, of, uh, of, of the image and we also want to remove those artifacts, all those patterns everywhere. We want to control both. Right, right. And, and I th like at the scales that you're working with, does the wavelength of the light, like almost like, like the quantum effect of the light itself is that playing a fairly large role like the, the actual waves in your telescope so waves the coming waves yeah yeah that are coming into the telescope and yeah and from all the individual photons are they like forming a pattern that matches yeah the the wavelength of the light so it it has different kind of impacts first it's a bit complex to, to explain, but a wave is like a complex, like a complex number. There is, um, there is the amplitude and there is a phase of the complex number. And also when you have these patterns, this, uh, this diffraction effect, this due to the amplitude part that is being transformed. And also, uh, due to errors, for instance, in ma manufacturing, uh, uh, the, the mirror and all of that, you also have phase errors. You have both errors in your system. You want to be able to control both the amplitude and the phase of what is, uh, what is arriving on your telescope. And that is really complex. With the chronograph, we, we can focus on both. We mainly focus on, on the amplitude effect. We consider, we neglect what is happening in the phase often, but now it's, uh, it's, uh, changing. We are, we are 
we are starting to have very good chronographs. So yeah, well, and I want to I want to talk about that for sure. So then a a a chronograph for a star. What does it look like? Like, what is the actual device? I mean, you have an example of it here, but but just like what what are the parts that are coming together to make this do its job to block that light? What are the devices in the chronograph? Yeah, yeah. Like what is actually happening to the light? The light is coming in from the telescope. (coughs) What are you doing to the light? So the light uh, can, uh, the light will uh, meet three, up to three devices. So the first one could be this one, these devices. And it uh, only modifies the amplitude of what is arriving of, of the wave or the wavefront. So this one modifies the amplitude, but other devices can also modify the phase. Um, then you have a second, de- we focus the light on the focal plane, man- uh, on the focal, focal plane, where we could have a detector, but for a chronograph, we don't have the detector. We have the, what we call the focal plane mask. So this is just a disk, which can once again be amplitude disk. So we just block the photons or we can have a phase, di- uh, phase uh, device. Uh, it's a bit more complex. And we block the core of uh, of the of the star. And then we have uh, another device that is uh, optically conjugated uh, to the first one to uh, remove the last uh, the residuals that are due to to the focal plane mask. So we have up to three devices. Uh, the first chronograph that was inv- invented by uh, Bernard Liu only had the last two devices. So the focal plane mask and what we call the Liu mask. And now we start to use, to use those uh, extra components and are really efficient to put uh, uh, um, before the rest of the chronograph and are really efficient and uh, we call them apodizers. And uh, yeah, so we have up to three. Uh, now, now I, I'm going to apologize because I don't exactly know what I'm talking about, but I know that this is somehow involved. But don't you use the light and have it interfere with itself to help block out some of that residual? Yeah. So it, I mean, in optics, everything can be interference. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, this is uh, actually a, a way of seeing that the focal plane mask, for instance, the, the very tiny uh, mask that we put uh, in the middle, the second component uh, can uh, act as an in- interference um, device. And then we can remove the, the, we have destructive, uh, a destructive uh, interference pattern in the focal, uh, in, in the detector plane, so the last focal plane. And uh, this is where we will look uh, for exoplanets. Right, right. If we um, have negative, um, destructive interferences uh, from the, the star itself, uh, we can see what, what is behind them, what is hidden. Right, right, right. So you take the, the light from the star, which is very bright. And you are passing it through this series of filters and chronographs, and you're also using that light against itself. You're interfering the light with itself, and the waves cancel each other out. And that leaves you, whatever remains is the planet that is nearby. Yeah, so we still have residuals from the star, always. Right. We can, uh, except if we remove uh, all the light, we cannot have no light coming from, from the star. I mean, coming from the star, we still, we always have. The question is, how can we have as 
little light as possible, as little photons as possible coming from from the, the star, in particular in the planet location where we expect right. to get it. And what is the biggest, or like, what is the most powerful coronagraph that's operating today? So today, it's a bit of a complex question because we have chronographs both on the ground, on space currently. We have also chronographs on the James Webb Space Telescope. We have chronographs on Hubble. Uh, we have chronographs on the ground. So in theory, the most powerful ones are I would say from the uh, on the ground, I would say in Chile, we have on the very large telescope, we have the sphere um, instrument, mm -hmm. which is an exoplanet imager, one of the most powerful today. We also have another one in Chile that is called GPI. Uh, it's uh, located on the Gemini South Telescope in Chile. Um, I would say also uh, as instrument Kekseo, which is in Hawaii on the Subaru Telescope. So we have uh, several very powerful chronographs today. Um, but I would say some of these technologies start to be old, in particular the one we send in space because they were manufactured 10, 20 years ago. ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Many years ago. So the, so the coming generation of chronographs will be really more efficient. And currently, the most powerful chronographs are the ones tested in uh, laboratories in untest beds. Right. So, so let's talk about some uh, some existing instruments right now. So, like on the very large telescope, the Sphere instrument, and I, I've seen many images from the Sphere instrument. I mean, that's where we see new planets forming around other stars, newly forming stars. It's it's quite amazing because you're seeing the planet, but it's a very special condition. It's a it's a young star. Star is not very hot, so it's not putting out a lot of radiation. The planet is very big. It's very far from its star in many cases. And so, so it is a lot brighter than, say, the Earth would be. What are, the, what are the limits to those coronagraphs, like sphere? Like, what is the most, like, what is it possible to see with sphere? So currently, we... All the three instruments I talked about, actually, including Sphere, we can image a big Jupiter-like planet, I would say. Uh, quite, um, yeah, I, I would say that a big, <laughs> big hot Jupiter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, around it, but it, but it also has to be around a, a new star that isn't very bright yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has to be like, yeah. It can be around a brown dwarf or something like that also. And uh, yeah, we cannot, uh, we are not ready to see an Earth-like planet. So we, right, we still right. have the technology, but uh, it's not yeah. a telescope yet. And it will probably not, it will probably be really hard to see it from, from the ground also. Right. And, and Webb is a little better than that, but essentially in the same kind of ability? Yeah, uh, James Webb, I I think there there is only one set of images that was released so far. I yeah. have, I don't remember yeah. what it's yeah, IP they... or something. I, I don't um, I don't remember what kind of planet it is. James Webb will not be able to go also as close uh, as the Earth is to 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 the right. Sun, of course. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, you, you're right. They they did a they released an image about a month ago. Yeah. Showing one of these. Oh, I forget which one. I know. I know it was like a bunch of numbers as the name of the star, but it's another one yeah. of these. <clears throat> these this one with the, where you've got this newly forming star with the large Jupiter orbiting around it, and it's but it's it's a picture of a planet. So that was it. On what? Uh, so on that image, if uh, yeah, um, if you have the image in in mind, you don't see the star. The star has been represented with a, a small uh, five peak star pattern, but that has been added numerically, and you only see the planet. Why? Because there is a chronograph in front of the star. On in all chronographic images, you actually don't see the star. Normally, you have a, a very bright spot just to show, uh, hey, there is a star here, but it has been added by. Uh, uh, by Photoshop or whatever. Right, right, because it is gone. Like if yeah. there was any light peeking through, you wouldn't be able to see that that planet. Yeah. All right. So now here's the fun part. What are you working on right now? What is the the chronograph that you have on your test bed that you are working with? <laughs> Me personally, or well, and your team, and and what people are. I mean, definitely okay. you personally, because I mean, I think it's really important. You know, you are you specialize in this, and you know a lot about this. So, what are you working on? So, in general, in test beds that are what is being tested on test beds all over the world are chronographs that are either for space ongoing as deep as possible in terms of contrast. So to, so to really, uh, we are talking about contrast down to, uh, I mean, up to 10 billion between the star and the planet. They are trying to get that. Currently, we can get a bit less than 1 billion um, in terms of contrast, uh, 1 billion factor. So we are quite close to getting mm -hmm. there, to have very powerful chronographs. I mean, powerfully enough to, to see the Earth. It has been obtained in the Paris Observatory testbed. It has been um, obtained on, in the, the Caltech testbed, I think, uh, GPL maybe. So a, a few testbeds in, in, in the world. So it's uh, really, we are getting there. And so what does a, a billion give you? If you, can, if you can block the light of the star by a factor of a billion, what would you be able to see in terms of exoplanets? Uh, a billion would be a very large Earth like planet. And there is another factor that I have not talked about earlier is that we also, the chronograph can get something, but at the end, the full performance cannot be recovered unless we have very strong post processing techniques. Mm -hmm. So, really, uh, algorithm and people are really good in doing that now is that we, the 10 billion contrast factor, uh, factor we will, we have cannot be obtained, uh, obtained unless we have very good algorithm also to process the data that would be obtained on telescopes. And um, that's also really important. Right. And, and the both go hand in hand. Yeah. They work together. Currently the best images we have, the one on the James Webb Space Telescope, the one we have on Sphere, they, Include a chronograph, but they also, but the chronograph isn't everything. And they, they have a very powerful post processing techniques that are being applied. Right. Yeah. So, and so the one that you, that you have, the one that you brought, um, that one is going on the extremely large telescope, or is, is there another level of technology that's being developed for the extremely large telescope? 
there are several technologies that are being de developed. This one will be for the extremely large telescope. So um, there are other very large, I mean, not like the very large telescope, but very, very large telescopes that are being built currently. There, there is a 30-meter telescope with, which will also have specific technologies. So that's an example of technology. There are also phase apodizers that are being built, uh, also very powerful. There are many different kind, kind of components that are being decided on the setup on the similar telescope, on the VLT, very large telescope, on the 30 meter telescope, on all telescopes being built currently. And uh, on, yeah, I, I would say, uh, on what I am working on will not be for the coming generation of instruments, will be for the next generation of instruments being uh, that will be maybe installed on the extreme large telescope. It's adaptive chronographs. So problem adaptive was, chronograph. Yeah. Yeah. How does that work? Yeah, that's pretty exciting actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> let's just talk about it. <laughs> I mean, I know uh, what adaptive optics are and I know what chronographs are. So what is an adaptive chronograph? So it's uh, chronographs are amazing, but they're very sensitive little animals. <laughs> very, very sensitive to everything. And every time you have atmospheric turbulence, you have whatever wrong is happening in your on your telescope, you have whatever problem, the chronograph is really bad. And we, we like really, really bad. Like on sphere, we are limited by aberrations, by the turbulence, by all of that. Uh, same on uh, GPI, the Gemini South instrument I was talking about, uh, etc. So what I'm working on with a team here and uh, on the, uh, with a team of researchers here is a chronograph that can be adapted. That pattern should be modified. So here we have a certain pattern for a certain kind of conditions. If here we have another pattern for another kind of conditions on scientific target. What I'm working on is that we have a pattern and we can modify that shape compared Whoa. to what we Yeah. Huh. So you so you're able to I mean, like with adaptive optics, you fire these lasers into the sky, you create these artificial stars that you know what they're supposed to look like, and then you deform the telescope to match the star, the the, the perturbations in the atmosphere to make the star a, a point again, and you're essentially removing the atmosphere. But with this existing coronagraph, it's just a piece of glass that is stuck with the shape that it has. And so you're limited by that resolution. You're always going to be going to have little bits of the star's light peeking out. And so you're attempting to make the actual shape of the mask change to adapt to the conditions of the sky. Okay, so how? <laughs> So that sounds hard. So that uh, I have to say that was not my idea at first. I was uh, I'm working on that, but it was uh, Alexi Carlotti, another researcher, ID at first. So the idea is to use a matrix of tiny mirrors. So here is transparent, but it could be a mirror also. Mm -hmm. It could be a, a mirror with the dark uh, spots, the same dark spot, and we have a reflection in in instead of a transmission of light. Yeah, but. So we could use a mirror and we can use mirrors. Uh, it's called a digital micro mirror device, DMD. It's a technology that is uh, used in a projection system. And we are trying to use one. So it's a set uh, of tiny, tiny, tiny mirrors, like 10 mi microns uh, 
a size of... But like, of, but like pixels, but mirrors. Yeah. And we can move them in one direction or in another, in, in, to another one. You could turn then, these tiny mirrors that are 10 microns across and angle yeah. their shape. Okay. Yeah. So we can put them in the direction where they reflect light and we can put them in another direction. So they will just remove the light uh, mm -hmm. elsewhere. Mm -hmm. and this is how we can get, and we can modify them as much as we want. We can uh, put uh, whatever pattern we want on those mirrors. You want a, a mirror uh, with the shape of a uh, of star, actually, if we want a, a mirror in the shape of a bee, of a herd, or whatever, <laughs> we, right. we can put whatever pattern we want. And if we want, we can put whatever pattern we want, we can put this kind of pattern. We yep. can adapt it to what is uh, wrong on the telescope. We can uh, say, uh, uh, I want actually to follow that planet while it's moving. And we can have, uh, we can decrease the star, the starlight around the planet while it's moving and follow the, the um, planet motion, which can be also really good when we want to do spectroscopy. If we want to have uh, spectroscopy only uh, to, like we put a fiber, uh, mono mode, uh, single mode fiber, and we want to get only the photons of the planet to be able to do spectroscopy and get the chemical composition of its atmosphere and any information we, we right, like. right. So then, these, how do you move these tiny little little mirrors so quickly? It's uh, it's like for the deformer in adaptive optics, we use uh, like you were mentioning. Uh, uh, we want to um, compensate the turbulence of the atmosphere, the motion of uh, of air uh, uh, above the telescope, and we use a deformable mirror. And behind it has small uh, small actuators, and we just command, we just send um, uh, a command like voltages. Mm -hmm. to, Vol right, to right. <clears throat> I mean, it sounds similar. I'm I'm sort of thinking about like a Kindle, like I have a I have a, a Kindle here right? Like a, like a book. And okay. it has little, little black dots the inside that, that can be turned one way or the other with magnetism. So they can be in, in one form, and then they can be flipped around. And you know, this, this idea of e ink, and so you they apply a voltage and it flips over the ones that are necessary and changes the, the shape that is on the on the screen. And so I'm kind of imagining something like it's like a, it's like a, an e ink version, mm. but it's a mask that you're using to block the light from the star, but you're, you're dialing it in. And so w would you need to f like, I'm assuming you're going to use like a laser like an adaptive optic system. And so would you have that in the field of view, like right beside the star or would could it be far away from from the star and you could be able to to know how to adapt the the optic system so actually we will not use so far it's a uh, unprocessed uh, under under development uh, mm -hmm. uh, technology so far we are not using a, a, a laser a laser because we it, it should be able to compensate for what is happening inside the telescope. So the laser in adaptive optics aims to correct for what is happening above the telescope. With this kind of tiny mirrors I'm talking about, we want to compensate all uh, errors happening inside the telescope in, in general. But I mean, like I could see as soon as light starts to peek in to your instrument, then you compensate to try and get rid of it again. But how do you know you're not getting rid of the planet? Like that's the trick, I think, right? Is that 
it's such you have to turn this so carefully and you could remove the light from the planet actually no <laughs> oh really okay great <laughs> easy but it's easy <laughs> uh, except if we totally block all photons we we cannot uh, remove uh, the light of the planet what is um uh what is happening so so that's for the apodaya so that's for the first mask some light is passing through like we have transmission or we have reflection with a with a the, the reflection we have reflections so we have photons coming from the planet and we have photons coming from the star but they're not coming with the same angle and right. actually then i i told you about a second mask the focal plane mask the one that is located at the star location once the light focuses on on what should be the detector but the detector is further uh, we have that tiny mask that is located just at, at the star position and that mask doesn't block the photon coming from the the photons coming from the planet it only blocks the photons coming from the star itself right right okay okay um I mean, I, I sort of think of like maybe almost like focus, like you're, you can just sort of tell when you've got the planet in, in view and then you hold it in that, in that position to keep the, the planet visible. And as soon as you start to lose the image of the planet, then you go back the other way to bring it back into the right level of blocking. So it's not focus, but you're blocking light. Um, uh, so w if this becomes operational, what will this give you? What what level of star to planet ratio can you get to? So this way we are testing it. We don't know yet. <laughs> we yeah. don't know uh, fully yet because also we have uh, we have many things to implement to set up on the test bed. Currently, we chronographs can go down to one. A very large Earth-like planet next mm -hmm. to a like star. Uh, on the test bed, we are more like a, a Jupiter, a large Jupiter, large planet <laughs> next to uh, a sun-like star. So it's uh, it's a bit uh, different. Uh, what uh, we, we need to implement many th different things uh, to 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 know more actually from the ground we don't expect to do so much better than that because then we are, we also have all those other limitations like we have the atmospheric turbulence and all of that so we don't only have we know we cannot get better than a certain level of mm -hmm. uh, performance on the ground uh, looking at, at uh, like in Chile or in Hawaii or in the Canary Island and all of that we know that we cannot get better than so even with adaptive optics, you really are limited by the atmosphere. To do this right, you want mm. a space telescope. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, James Webb, for example, is a, you know, it's an infrared telescope and it has a lot of jobs. It's looking at the beginning of the universe. It's looking at planet it's looking through into star forming star. regions it's looked at yeah. neptune like it can do all kinds of things but let's say that you wanted to build a telescope that's only job was to look for earth-sized exoplanets 
and it didn't have to be able to do anything else, what would what would it look like? What would that that space telescope? Its only job is to look for Earth sized planets with a fancy coronagraph. Tell me so, what describe this telescope to me. So that's really interesting that you're asking this question because that telescope is will happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, it will happen. And it's uh, so in last November, the NASM, uh, including Na NASA and all that, they decided to allocate. So they, 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 uh, they published a report. That this is, is the, the decadal survey, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a yeah. decadal survey report. And that decadal survey report decides what will happen, how will be allocated the budget of uh, 2040, what is what will happen in astronomy in 2030, 2040. Mm -hmm. And the decadal survey is uh, decided to allocate $10 billion to a large space telescope being able to look for uh, Earth-like planets. So this is really good for us astronomers. We're yeah. really happy. And what will it look like? It should currently, it has not uh, been uh, decided yet. Currently, it could be a segmented telescope like the James Webb mm -hmm. around the size of the James Webb Space Telescope. So 10, uh, six uh, ish meter, uh, a diameter of six ish meter. And it will have a very powerful chronograph. And not only, actually, it will have a very powerful chronograph made maybe of patterns like that too. Mm -hmm. So with the three components of uh, the three different components I was talking about, an apodizer like that, a focal plane mask and another mask behind. And it will also have deformable mirrors. So do you know uh, what, uh, what it is? Mm -hmm. You work with adaptive optics, mm -hmm. uh, deformable mirrors. Our mirrors, you can you can modify the shape. And, and so let me just stop you for one second, because I think for, for a lot of people, the idea of adaptive optics is should only be necessary on Earth because you have the atmosphere. So why do you need an adaptive optic system in space when there's no atmosphere? So very good question. <laughs> I love these questions. <laughs> so you need one because first you have residuals you have errors, except if you have a perfect telescope, you always have errors. So for instance, you can have a mirror that is not fully uh, flat or curved, depending on what you want. And you have tiny, tiny errors. We think that on that large telescope I was talking about, we want a flatness, a surface flatness of mirrors down to 10 picometers. RMS, 10 picometers. Right. Really, really small. That's really <laughs> flat, yeah. Smaller than a Nongstrom, so you know it's really, really small. Uh, on a, a six-meter telescope, so this is what you want, and that you cannot get currently. Like the James Webb, it has a, a flatness performance of a, a few tenths of um, of uh, of nanometers, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like so, it, like ten nanometers. Yeah, 30, 40. Uh, right, yeah. 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 And, and so and we want to get a factor of uh, 1,000 compared to that. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's uh, huge and it's so small. <laughs> you want this level of flatness, but also on a space telescope that you launch from Earth and the telescope has to deploy a segmented mirror and a line. Yeah. That sounds 
I mean, people were so excited about the accuracy of James Webb. Now you want to do a thousand times more accurate. Yeah. So the adaptive optic system allows you to compensate if it's not perfect. Yeah. Right. You, you want to compensate and you want to do more than that. You also want to use the deformable mirror to remove even more starlight in the area you are looking for an exoplanet than what the chronograph is doing. The deformable mirror will be used not only to compensate for aberration, but to work with the chronograph in addition oh, okay. to the chronograph to go and removing starlight from those regions. So it's like you're kicking away the starlight from the mirror as well as the, and then letting some will get through to the chronograph and the chronograph gets rid of more. Yeah. I understand. Right. They need to work together actually. And th that's uh, it's really, it, it will be very beautiful. And before that large telescope coming uh, in 2040, yeah, there will be another telescope uh, in 2028, 20, I would say, which is called the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope. And uh, it's also a NASA telescope. It's uh, it's uh, de developed now, and it will have a deformable mirror sent in space to do that. It will be a prototype um, demonstrator telescope. It will be a telescope the size of Hubble, 2.4 uh, uh, meter diameter, I think. So the size of Hubble, but it will have very powerful technology on it. It will not be able to detect really, or maybe, a bit by chance, Earth-like planets, but it will uh, it will have all those unique, very beautiful components, devices on it to see if they can survive in space. Right, so it will test, so Nancy Grace Roman will yeah. test this technology, this idea of a deformable mirror in space, this next level of advanced coronagraph. Mm -hmm. I mean, Nancy Grace will be mapping dark energy, it will be discovering exoplanets through micro lensing, but yeah. it will also be practicing this technology. I didn't realize that it would we would have this deformable mirror on board. That's that's yeah. really exciting. It's a yeah. it's more of a pathfinder mission for that next generation planet yeah. hunter. Than we I could realized. Have a demonstration, a demonstration telescope, because it would be the first time, uh, uh, um, I mean, it will demonstrate the possibility of what will happen on that next large telescope that should be called Luvoir or Luvex, still changing. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a demonstration telescope. I mean, I think a lot of people were very excited by Luvoir that, that it would be a maybe 10 meter, maybe 15 meter space telescope. And, and we're disappointed that now it's probably going to be smaller that it's, you know, because of the decadal survey, it's going to be maybe the size of of web. But, but what makes it exciting again, is this chronograph that that it was going to have all of this new technology, that is more realistic to build at that smaller level, you take all of the the experience gained, I mean, again, web was 20 years, $10 billion. Like, I don't think anyone wants to make the mistake of building a dramatically bigger telescope again. But 
I love this idea that you have you have web for the kind of the hard proving the the deployment side, and then on the other hand, you have Nancy Grace Roman testing all these technologies, and then that comes together for the for that next level telescope that will do this one job. Although it's it's not going to do just one job, Louvoir or whatever it's going to be called, it will be a general purpose instrument. Yeah, yeah, it will look at many things. In particular, for it will, uh, one of his uh, main targets will be a flat planet, and we are disappointed. It's smaller than what uh, some people were working on, but it's not. It's a good trade-off, I would say, <laughs> because first we can still detect a flat planet at that diameter of telescope, at that yeah. uh, for, for that design. For, um, of course, if we increase the diameter, then we can uh, detect more of like planets and we would be happy of that. But we still have very good targets to look at and to look for uh, with that diameter. And also, uh, it's uh, it will not be built as the large one, the uh, 15 meter one was designed because the 15 meter uh, one was designed as uh, James Webb, uh, meaning a large, um, primary mirror, a uh, small secondary mirror in front of it, all symmetrical. This one will not be symmetrical. It will be off-axis, what we call off-axis. It will be a bit different. So we'll not have that secondary mirror here mm -hmm. hiding uh, a part of the primary mirror. I mean, it, it, it's smaller, but it's uh, more, it's a bit more challenging <laughs> in terms of uh, of uh, techniques. <laughs> of, um, well, th that idea of, of off-axis, I've heard this several times. What is exactly, like like when we think about web, we think about we've got the primary mirror, you've got the, the light is coming in, bouncing off the primary mirror. The secondary mirror is hovering in front of the primary mirror. It's bouncing off of that and, and then focusing. It's like if you have a telescope, if you have like a Newtonian telescope, you know what this, this looks like. So yeah. what is an off-axis telescope how does that work so an off-axis telescope means that we have when we have a normal telescope i mean a parabolic telescope we use the center of a, of the parabolic mirror an off-axis telescope we use another part of the parabola so the light then focuses as a uh, focus point of uh, the mirror is not in front of the mirror I see. So it's so it's focusing the light a little off to the side, and that's yeah. where you capture the secondary mirror, and that's where you yeah. focus it. Then you have nothing that hides the primary mirror, so you right. have less uh, less uh, edges. You have less. Uh, you don't have spiders in front of the primary mirror. I mean, I, I don't know how it will be designed, but uh, no, normally this is uh, the way. Uh, this is optimization we are trying to to do. And so when people always complain about those the bright stars around. Web and the or Hubble, in theory, an off-axis mirror won't have any of those diffraction spikes at all. But, but I'm sure there'll be something in front of the the way in in some mechanism. But but I guess the challenge of the off-axis mirror is that it's much more difficult to grind the shape of the mirror because it's changing. Like when I think about a like if I want to grind my own parabolic mirror myself, I just have to get a, a shape. And then just I can turn the shape in the glass. And as long as it fits, then I've made my mirror. But if you want one that that where the focus is somewhere else, 
that sounds like a very complicated grinding job. Um, not, I mean, it's always complicated, <laughs> not that much, because yeah. actually we just do a large parabola and we cut part of it. Oh, so you make a much bigger mirror and then you cut the piece out that you want. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. I thought this you had to... This is the way to... off-axis parabola are made, for instance, so what we use on test beds, we use uh, off-axis parabolic mirrors. And actually we, I mean, we uh, polishers, <laughs> polish a very large parabola and they cut part of it at the right location to get the right uh, inclinations, the right uh, focus point and all of that. And they cut part of it. And uh, with a large parabola, actually, you can get a bunch yeah. like six uh, or four uh, small... Uh, so, so you didn't exactly answer my question. So my Sorry. question was, well, no, it's fine. It's fine. I, you were very excited uh, to talk about the next telescope that comes after, after Webb. And, you know, we got Nancy Grace Roman testing the technology and we've got Louvoir or whatever it's going to be, but, but it is a general purpose telescope. It, one of the things it can do is in theory detect Earth-sized worlds around sun-like stars, but it's also designed to do other things. There are compromises. So my question was, what's the perfect machine? If you had no compromises, that you didn't have to worry about a someone who looks at nebula or someone who wants to study galaxies wanting to use your planet hunter all it's for is to is to image planets. What would your dream telescope coronagraph? What's that mission look like? So, so if uh, NASA was ready to give me ten billion dollars, yes, no problem. <laughs> I've I've already I've already cleared it with them. It's coming. So I would say it's a space telescope as large as possible, mm -hmm. uh, at least six meter large telescope. Um, I need to think. <laughs> <laughs> You've never thought about this before? <laughs> uh, probably of axis all uh, too, because uh, we can really get uh, more photons and we have less uh, drawbacks when building conographs behind the uh, uh, axis te telescope. Uh, yeah, actually, it would be a... <laughs> then I would say an adaptive chronograph because I really believe in the technology of just removing the starlight on one area at the planet location and then putting a, a single mode fiber because the next... What we are looking for in terms of exoplanets is images and spectra. And what I would say is a chronograph fully compatible with getting a nice high spectral resolution spectrum of planet at any location of the planet. And that is not done that much uh, today. So, so, sorry, you say any location of the planet. Do you mean its location in the orbit or do you mean like looking around at the planet itself? Like we know where the planet is. I, I imagine a mission where we know, like with imaging exoplanets, we did discover a few exoplanets, but it's not the main method to detect for the first yeah. time exoplanets. Uh, the interest of high contrast, I mean, of uh, imaging exoplanets and using chronograph is that we already know where the planet is and we want to get an image of it and we want to get photons of it and we want to have information and spectra out of it. 
So I imagine a, a conograph that is built so we can put a, spectro, a spectroscopy behind it. Right. Like, and, and, and we already know where the planet is. We don't need to look for an exoplanet. We just want to put something. <laughs> right. And But with spectroscopy, you need a fairly bright image of the planet. You need a lot of light. So do you think yeah. your that six meter telescope is big enough? Or do you think to to get that that to do the spectroscopy, you would need a bigger telescope? Um, a, one of the main drawbacks of the chronograph are these dark areas here. We have a loss of photons coming from the planet that are stopped by those dark areas. And if we have a chronograph that is following the planet, that is not trying to remove the starlight everywhere, we just remove the starlight where the planet is, then we have less photons that are lost. We can get more photons just using this method. Do you understand where, what mm -hmm. I mean? Yep, yep, okay. yep, yep, <laughs> yep. So, okay. Um, and getting that spectra, mm -hmm. what, what would you be observing? I mean, I guess you would be observing the atmosphere, the, the gases in the atmosphere of the Earth-sized planet around the sun-like star. Is that? Yeah. So what we're looking for in general are biomarkers. Because we are trying to look for life somewhere else. We don't know how to get it, but we know how to get uh, some clues that it could uh, maybe perhaps uh, exist uh, on a planet. So we know what to look for. We have this kind of cocktail of uh, biomarkers of molecules we are looking for, including the carbon dioxide, carbon carbon mole derivative uh, molecules in general, water, uh, um, oxygen, and uh, ozone. I don't know ozone. Is mm -hmm. it uh, ozone? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So all those uh, molecules molecules we are looking for, and uh, this is mainly located in uh, the near infrared and uh, middle, uh, mid infrared on a bit in the visible. So I would say also my perfect uh, dream telescope will also look for a bit like web in the, in the visible, in the um, near infrared and in mid infrared. <laughs> right. So you do want that wider field of view, not just visible. You want to see, um, I mean, the, but I mean, there are other things potentially like there's been this idea that save, um, plants reflect infrared light in a very specific wavelength of infrared. Mm -hmm. The they call it the red edge. That might be interesting if you could see if you could detect that with your with your telescope. Um, I mean, the, the biosignatures one is, is actually very is very difficult. I mean, astronomers are arguing right now about if there even is a biosignature that would tell you that there was a life there. Uh, there was like a paper that just came out proposing nitrous oxide as mm. a chemical. And we've, but then you think about the search for life on Venus and astronomers are arguing about phosphine and Venus is, is right there. It's like right beside <laughs> us. And yet we can't be certain if the chemicals of life are there. So it's a, it sounds like a tricky job to see 
to, to, to detect life. You could find carbon dioxide, methane. All of these have natural processes that create them as well. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's very, very true. We already don't know what is happening in our system. <laughs> so even if we have some ideas of what would be happening somewhere in another uh, system, what uh, we can not be, we cannot know for sure. And I think that's also really beautiful, actually. And it's also why it's important to to say that even if we discover an Earth-like planet somewhere, we cannot be sure life is happening there. We cannot be sure. We know we will not go there, and we know there is no planet B. <laughs> Currently, we don't find out a planet B, and even if we find one, we don't know. We cannot go there, and we don't know what is right. happening there. So <laughs> We evolved on Earth for this environment. This is the best planet that we yeah. will ever find in the universe mm. because we're part of it. So, yeah. um, so we then... Know Life is happening here. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. We can't be sure that intelligent life is happening here, but we do know that life is happening here. Um, so then what, you know, what interesting result should people be watching for from you and your team next? Like, what's the thing that we will see in the next few months or maybe year that is the result of the work that you're doing right now? Uh, so in the coming years, there will be the setup of the ground-based giant telescopes. And they will have very powerful chronographs. And some of them will even, they're large enough to resolve, optically resolve, um, large planets around faint stars, I would say. And this is something we can look for. This is really, uh, it will be really uh, interesting. So it will be around 2027, 2028. So that would be a nice result to see what is happening there. Yeah, I would say. Yeah. 2028, that's the, that's, yeah. I mean, I guess 2020, 20, around that. And, and Nancy Grace Roman launches around that same time as well. Yeah. So I think if people will see, okay, the, the 40 meter te extremely large telescope works and is starting to show pictures of exoplanets, Nancy Grace Roman is flying and testing all of this next level technology. And then yeah. we will it's see those come together in the one that will find another Earth. Yeah. And those telescopes will have up-to-date technology. And this is really good. Like first ground-based telescopes are more able to get uh, up-to-date technology because they are ground-based. <laughs> and, uh, and also uh, the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope will have very powerful technology on it. Um, I think, yeah, those two, uh, 2028, uh, <laughs> 2030 maybe is the time to set up and all of that will be a very nice time. <laughs> it's just around the corner. It'll, it'll feel like you won't even notice and suddenly these next telescopes are, are online and, and taking these, these images. It's, it's really exciting. And yeah. I'm really looking forward to seeing these next telescopes come online. I mean, I, I always say that we're in the golden age of astronomy. It always feels like we're because of all of these amazing instruments, but, but when those come online, that is just amazing what's what's going to happen mm -hmm. next well it's been a pleasure talking with you today uh what is the best place for people to keep track of the work that you're doing and and 
and interact if, if they want to? Um, I would say Twitter. I'm mm -hmm. quite active on Twitter, mainly in French, but sometimes in English, and I can still be contacted to to talk English. I still have a very strong French accent. But, <laughs> but you I did can great. Yeah. <laughs> Again, so your French Twitter. is your English is better than my French. <laughs> Très bien. Um, but uh, so, and, and what's your Twitter handle? Lucie Le Boule, like my first name, my family name, uh, yep. all Lucie together. Okay. And I'm under the name uh, Lucy in the Sky, I think, or in the Stars. Okay. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Well, Dr. Le Blue, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It was absolutely fascinating. Great to sort of update my understanding of coronagraphs and the current state of the art. I really appreciate it. And good luck with the work that you're doing. And I can't wait to see this adaptive coronagraph technology actually function functioning. It sounds exciting. Thank you very much. Thank you for putting attention to technology also. Yeah, <laughs> Thank absolutely. You very much. All right, take care.